Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Are you ready to challenge a rhetoric? Today is Wednesday, February 1st, 2017. My name is Sherry Roberts, and and you're listening to Challenging the Rhetoric. I'm glad you're here. Tonight, Washington, D.C. National Security Attorney Mark Zabe will be joining us. What role does Russia play in President Trump's inner circle? What was in the two-page intel brief about the Steele dossier that was given to Donald Trump before he took office that the intelligence community wants us to believe is irrelevant? Do Americans have a right to know? I think so. Welcome to the show. We have a president at war with the media, and journalists are fighting back. The lawsuits are stacking up. Last night I asked, what does a Trump presidency mean and uh, or say about us as a nation? You know, I don't know. I mean, we're going to try to continue answering that question. Tonight we're going to take a little bit of a deeper look. We're going to look from a legal perspective at some of the situations that are already bubbling and brewing under the seemingly unconstitutional president we now have. At least former acting Attorney General Sally Yates had the balls to stand up to him. As always, we have a lot to talk about if you'd like to participate with us during the live broadcast. Um, I, I encourage that. The chat room is on blog talk radio forward slash challenging the rhetoric with Sherry Roberts. Just click on episode 47. The chat room should load beneath the slider. You can also tweet to us during the show at CTR newsfeed. Also be sure to visit the website and Facebook page at challenging the rhetoric dot news tonight. We're using the hashtag CTR Trump dossier FOIA and resist Trump. Remember, this is a dialogue, not a debate. Our guest tonight is a challenging the rhetoric favorite, definitely a favorite. For two decades or more, Mark Zaid has fought to guarantee the rights of former, current, and prospective civilian federal employees, defense contractors, members of our active duty and reserve military, and journalists like me, particularly when they are threatened by the overshadowing specter of national security. His responsibilities has uh, they've ranged from high profile members of Congress to covert CIA operations officers to some of America's best news reporters, like we're going to talk about tonight. Mark is also the executive director of the James Madison Project, Washington, D.C. nonpartisan organization established in 1998 to promote government accountability and the reduction of secrecy related to intelligence and national security. What's not to love about that, right? Mark Zaid, welcome back to the show. Hello, Sherry. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Well, I, I guess I'm doing excellent other than the topics that we're discussing tonight. Well, I mean, you have to be like swamped. So I appreciate your time for sure. <laughs> I mean, you have to be like buried and stuff. I, you have at least five Trump lawsuits going on right now that 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 we've we've discussed and I'm aware of. Um, give us a little bit of indication on kind of your world right now. Well, the the world is starting very active. We we started even before uh, Trump was inaugurated, uh, filing a number of FOIA requests. That's what I'm doing for a ton of journalists, uh, mainstream journalists. Uh, I do want to emphasize sort of 
indicated it in your your opening. I, I'm a nonpartisan lawyer. I go after everybody. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, whether you're my client or if I'm going after you. And I get a lot of comments of, okay, did you do this this way when Obama came in? And I go, well, one, I didn't have as much an internet presence at the time, no Twitter, of course, but uh, but no, but neither did I do this when President Bush came in uh, the second time around, first and second time, second, you know, younger Bush. Uh, I was in every president's face since 1993. Uh, this one is different. There is no doubt about it. Uh, but it's not a Republican-Democrat uh, type of effort. It, it is, I, I am not in favor of, of this leadership. Uh, I'll take each policy as it goes along. So we're representing a lot of journalists, MSNBC, uh, ABC reporters, NBC reporters, uh, Politico reporters, uh, foreign policy, uh, what Gawker when it was. Uh, but we're also on the other side with the Daily Caller, Wall Street Journal reporters. So it, it really is a nonpartisan effort to get an access to information as to what we need to know the government is doing for us, to us, or without us. <laughs> yeah, I, the the last uh, few days have been so fast moving and just me just you know this one little podcaster here it's very hard to keep up and as I'm prepping for each show I'm I'm trying to stay kind of on top of everything happening and I have to admit I am literally very overwhelmed just in the last, you know, two or three days, there's so much going on. Um, but you mentioned Gawker and, um, you know, or a former Gawker. And so last time you were here, and it's been a while since you were here. So, um, and we need to not wait that long next time. But um, that was the last time you were here. You were handling a case with Gawker with regards to the Hillary Clinton emails. Is that correct? You want to recap on that a little bit? Yep. We had three lawsuits uh, for the, um, uh, involved with Hillary Clinton's emails. Uh, we actually got a decision in one of the cases uh, just literally a day or two ago, two days ago, uh, which was involved with David Kendall, uh, who is her lawyer, uh, and the situation about how David Kendall, who's an excellent lawyer, and I know, uh, how he was able to get a, a safe in his law office to, to maintain classified information, because I never get that in all the cases that I have. And we want to find out why is that seemingly different. And uh, the judge in our case ruled that the State Department had filed inadequate declarations describing what its search parameters were. So they have to go back and redo everything. Uh, but we had Veterans for Strong America, which is actually somewhat of a very, very conservative Trump-supporting veterans organization. We represented them dealing with emails pertaining to Benghazi and Hillary Clinton. Uh, and, of course, I represented uh, six of the CIA personnel that were in Benghazi when the murder of our ambassador happened. We had Gawker, and then we had somebody else. Oh, and the Daily Caller. Uh, so I actually had two, two of three were very conservative publications trying to get access to the emails and find out what was going on. And the reason why we were doing that, because... I absolutely disagreed with what Secretary Clinton did and her staff with respect to the emails. So, again, didn't have anything to do with uh, what the use of the information would be put to. In fact, the New York Times had reported I was advising the RNC on how to get access to Hillary Clinton's emails and find out what was going on. So I 
think the VSA case is done. The Gawker case is still ongoing because we also represented John Cook in his individual capacity was one of the editors there. So even though Gawker's gone, the case continues. And the Daily Caller case is still ongoing as well. <laughs> well, and and like I said, there's at least five that you're handling with Trump. So you you have a lot of this going on. So let's since I'm a journalist, let's talk about you have a couple cases going on with um, some of the journalists right now with regards to the FOIAs on a, a few different aspects of this administration. So before we get into exactly what those FOIAs are, can you kind of share a little bit about what it is that you do for journalists specifically? So uh, I have offered, and many have taken me up on it, that I am willing to represent journalists who have legitimate national security FOIA requests. So we'll help draft them, uh, craft them in a way that would be most beneficial and most responsive in obtaining documents. Uh, We will then submit them to the agencies, and depending on the response and the timing and the subject matter, we'll represent them pro bono for free as well. The James Madison Project, which you mentioned that I run, uh, has received a number of donations from people. So the James Madison Project is actually funding the litigation. Uh, We don't get paid by legal fees. If we win the case, the government will have to pay our legal fees. But the journalists aren't being charged any time, and they're not even being charged out-of-pocket expenses because the donations are taking care of that. So, so far, we've, we've gone after um, documents pertaining to uh, the, the Russian allegations to the involvement with President Trump in the dossier, dossier uh, and that 35 pages, the two-page synopsis that was given uh, in the intel briefing uh, about the most recent that I know we'll talk about with respect to the interplay between President Trump's secret security, secret service security detail and his private security detail. Uh, also, uh, documents pertaining to, uh, this is actually with uh, President Obama, the, the clemency for, for Manning and the pardon for General Cartwright, uh, but also, let's see, for Louise Mensch, who's a former British MP, now a journalist here in New York, uh, documents pertaining to any leaks that went from the FBI to the Trump transition team. If you remember, Rudy Giuliani was kept going on air saying that you know people in the FBI are telling him that they're furious at what is going on. They're furious that people haven't, that Hillary hasn't been indicted. Indictment is forthcoming. They've told us this. And you know, now he's denying that, uh, but there's, there was supposed to be leak investigations. Uh, there was a Twitter, a tweet that came out from an FBI account that hadn't been, uh, hadn't been active for a year that tweeted about the release under FOIA of President Clinton's documents pertaining to the pardon of Mark Rich, which was a very controversial pardon in his last days of office. And that came out right at the, right before the election. And there was all, everybody was up in arms as to what happened there. And so there is an internal investigation. We've got a FOIA uh, lawsuit for that as well. Uh, we are representing MSNBC, and one of those involves with the Office of Government Ethics and what is going on uh, with respect to the Trump first transition team, now administration, and their compliance with ethical obligations and as to whether or not they do 
have any, actually. And MSNBC did a big story that got a lot of play based on what we received through FOIA, which was basically revealing that the weeks after the election, throughout November, there was very little contact between the Trump transition team and the Office of Government Ethics, and OGE, as it's called, was frantic trying to find out what is going on. Why are we not hearing from you? Who are we supposed to be talking to? There's so much we need to do and explain to you. And the point person had disappeared. Uh, It's been a fascinating case, and we've got a lot more in the works that are just pending and waiting until they're administratively ripe so that we can sue. Mark, before I like kind of jump into these FOIAs and and the stuff going on with the media with Trump, and I, and I don't normally ask my guests to do this, and I don't think I've actually asked you to do this, but we are really in a very important time right now, and things are very fluid and fast moving. Can you maybe stress to the listening audience why, I guess kind of to toot your own horn, what is the importance of what you're bringing to the table tonight? How dialed in are you into D.C., into this administration? What is going on from whistleblowers to, to people in, you know, alphabet agencies to, you know, uh, journalists and all of that. I mean, really, there's there's an important reason that I brought you on, and I can convey that, but then I'm kind of preaching to the choir. Can you maybe toot your own horn for a minute? Well, it's not even about tooting my own horn. It's, it's that Americans need to understand actually how things work. I think a lot of what prompted Donald Trump to be able to win this election, quite honestly, is that people outside of this sphere, whether you want to call it the Beltway, which is not just the Beltway, that's the road that circles D.C., it goes far beyond the Beltway now when it really comes down to it uh, as far as who works in in, in, in and around D.C. But if you get outside of the major metropolitan areas and people are only getting their news information from a single source or at least a single ideological set of sources, and that could be both on the left and the right. Uh, and, and <laughs> you there's mean a real problem with that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's forget it. YouTube's in its own <laughs> own world. There are all these fake websites that are coming up it's and fake cesspool. news stories. Yeah, real fake news stories. Like, this is not a real story, but it's portrayed to be. And that's where people are learning. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is to help the, the journalists get access to uh, the most fundamental, most accurate information. And, and I'm seeing, and it's very difficult, things are very frantic right now in D.C. I, I think that's probably pretty evident to people outside of D.C. But, you know, when I'm going through Twitter uh, all day long and I'm seeing these rumors and innuendos being sort of promulgated up through the system, percolating up from the bottom to the top by mainstream journalists, uh, who in fact I know, who are saying, hey, I heard a source that said this. And the problem is, I'm sure they're accurate. They did have a source who said this, but the source is not necessarily accurate. And there's a lot of spin going on and, you know, trying to understand the spin from this White House, which seems to be more adept at doing it than any that I've seen uh, in the past. And maybe not adept is the word. Maybe that, you know what, they have their view and they just don't care what the other view is, Uh, this alternative fact type uh, network. So I try to get to the source documents. Uh, That's the most important to me. And then I want the public to be able to see them 
and then render their own judgment based on that. So if you have an email between you know, a, a cabinet secretary and what the White House is telling them to do, you know, that's there in black and white. I, I don't care what the press secretary might be saying. You know, so you can you can read that and interpret it the way that, that you want. And I, frankly, I've seen clients on both sides of the aisle spin it in their particular way. And I, I might say something different. But, you know, now more than ever, uh, when we have a president that lives by tweets, uh, in 160 characters or less, you know, we need to digest more than just that to understand what is going on in our country. Well, absolutely. And and I will say that um, I feel somewhat responsible for your presence on Twitter, because I know that I gave you a hard time a couple of years ago about not really being on there. But and I want to correct, I believe it's unless they've changed it. And I'm not aware, I believe it's 140 characters or less. 140? And I always forget it's 140, 160, yeah. whatever the heck it is. Well, and it counts the hashtags. It counts. I mean, it counts every every character. You know, all of your um, punctuation, your spaces, all of it. And we tend to be having a lot of national conversations on Twitter. Uh, it, conversations of of really, at this point, in my opinion, grave import. And when we're having them in 140 characters or less, which when you think of hashtags, it's like two thirds of that to try to make any point. It's there is no fluidness. It's just this fast. We're talking at people. We're not talking with people. And I think that's part of the problem. So I want to jump into these FOIAs with um, that you have going on with Politico and, and others. And but one of the things that is very troubling to me as we go into that, I think this is kind of a good segue in is that. You know, if we're supposed to have this free press, then how are we going to really be able to have a free press when President Trump has said that he is going to handpick those who are going to report on his White House? And now, just uh, yesterday, Jerome Corsi of WorldNet Daily announced that for InfoWars, Alex Jones, you know, InfoWars is applying and Trump has uh, lauded Alex Jones. You know, he's got Steve Bannon from Breitbart, you know, as his basic right-hand man. So how do we have a free press in, in this uh, in this administration? And then we'll go from that right into the FOIAs, Mark. Well, you know, it depends on how you want to define free press, I suppose. You know, so far, I, I, I wouldn't say I haven't seen any press restrictions other than the president isn't calling on certain networks like CNN, which he continually, <laughs> continually bashes and then continually praises Fox News. Now, that, that is not, not restricting press. I mean, he can call on whoever he wants. He's, he obviously doesn't follow the norms, what we're used to, so that the major members of the media, what is recognized as the major members, would uh, be recognized. Uh, you know, there was talk of moving the press room and reassigning seats I think today's press conference was the first time where they had people that weren't present actually participating via Skype. I heard one of them, and I think today was the first. Now, when you start getting into what you're raising, because there's, there's so many different issues in what you're really talking about, this free yeah, press, I'm really ironically... I'm looking at the legal aspect of this constitutionally. Yeah. Well, ironically, I'd say including Alex Jones is, is more indicative or, or, or revealing that there is a free press, except that I wouldn't call them press, and I, I wouldn't even call them factually accurate. Uh, and and that's, that's the problem. I mean, we've got an administration now that is, is giving 
credence and credibility to fringe websites and so-called news organizations. Um, you know, I, I know I've heard some conversations, some of the, the mainstream journalists would talk about how, you know, when we would go to the supermarket, especially pre-internet, and or even now, quite frankly, you know, when you see the National Enquirer, the Weekly World News, the Globe, and you're, you know, you get a a, a joke and a smile when you see what the headlines are and the pictures, and you might even pick it up for a minute while you're waiting in line to see what that actor or actress looks like in their bathing suit when they're now overweight or looking great uh, <laughs> to see these photos, because at least those presumably are real photos. But the stories are nothing more than most of the time fabrication. I mean, I've had I've had a ca at least one case that I re can recall against the National Enquirer for publishing uh, a, a, a defamatory, totally false story. But everybody knows that when you see those. You can't tell the difference now, unfortunately, with, with a number of them. And, uh, you know, Alec Jones is one of the worst of the worst, even though, you know, Washington Post did a very lengthy story on him recently, about a page or so at least, um, because of the impact that he's having on people. Uh, and it, it is a it is a real danger. So in that sense, it's almost too much press. But it, it's not like you can tell the president or the White House not to include them. That's up to them. Where the difference is going to be is from the people. You know, the people who are listening to your show who are going to say, you know, no, you know, this is not acceptable. You cannot put let, – let's do it in their own terms. You cannot put – Alec Jones on the same pedestal as Fox News. You know what? They're not the same. <laughs> right. They're, exactly. And, you know, this, this, and, and I'm not asking for you to endorse me, but you, you kind of bring up like the shady area that I, I think is important as we're moving forward with what Trump's doing with the media. All the legacy media out there that is, that are trying to do their job and everything, oftentimes someone like me is looked at this lowly blogger or podcaster or whatever. But if that was the case, you wouldn't be coming on my show today, let alone all the many times that you came on my show. There is some kind of, faith in truth in what I'm publishing and producing that you have for me. And so I think someone like you, Mark, it's really important to have a voice out there for legacy media to maybe, I mean, they know what is fake and what isn't, but when there is someone like me that is working their butts off and doing the, the real work, the real investigating and the real reporting that they need to be able to you know, acknowledge that and somehow maybe, I mean, oftentimes, you know, they'll, they'll post something for a story, a little blip. And if you're lucky, you might get a link back, but they have no problem using your work. So there is a determination between a cesspool of fake news and people that just prefer not to work under a masthead, right? I mean, cause I you come from corporate media, think. you know, I mean, I, I left it for a reason, you know? You know, we're in a completely changed world at the moment, and, you know, I, I don't really know what's going to happen from day to day. I was listening earlier to C-SPAN where they were playing some of the Prime Minister's Question Time and uh, Prime Minister Theresa May over in London, and I actually I used to work for the House of Commons and a member of Parliament and, uh, during the Thatcher days in the 80s. And the debate that they were airing was <laughs> – was about the president of the United States and whether he's a fascist. 
I mean, who would have ever thought that that was going to be the debate in the British House of Commons? Uh, it was as if they were talking about 1930s Europe. And then it was reported earlier tonight that the, you know, reported, because I don't know if it's true or not, but reported by legitimate media at least, that White House sources had revealed that the president had a conversation with the Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, it was supposed to be an hour-long conversation. It ended up being 20 minutes because he hung up on the Australian Prime Minister, and he was basically excoriating him and chiding him. Uh, it's, this, is, this is not the world that you and I knew watching through the Nixon-Carter Reagan, etc. Days, uh, it's it's up for grabs. I, you know, I'm almost dumbfounded at times. As a lawyer, I, I I'm I'm at a loss for words sometimes with what's going on. I can imagine. And for the listeners who have not heard Mark on the show before, there are a lot of different things that Mark and I disagree on. Uh, I'm well on the record. I I believe in in conspiracies. I do not believe that everything is a conspiracy. And I am also well on the record for going against all the hoaxers uh, in this world, especially here in America. Let's jump over to these FOIAs, Mark. Okay, so and I want to start with... um, I want to start with the the is it Ken Vogel from Politico? He how ha- you have yep. and the, Josh um, Gerstein. Yeah, are they both signed on to the same FOIAs? Yes. Okay, so let's start with the one with regards to the Secret Service and Trump's um, security detail. Can you talk a little bit? I, I know I don't want to put you on the spot. Obviously, you can only say what you can say, but let's start with that, and then I want to get into the dossier because I have a lot of questions on that one. Sure. So. It, Again, because of the difference of a Donald Trump coming in as an incredibly wealthy individual who had his own private security detail, uh, whereas you know most of our other presidents are coming in through the political system, even though they might have a great deal of money. President Bush, uh, George W. Bush, had uh, certainly a good deal of money when he was governor of Texas before he became the president of the United States. So Trump has his own security detail. Uh, they tend uh, to have been uh, a good number of former New York City police officers. There have been accusations of uh, aggressive and inappropriate behavior, manhandling by them, uh, of people, of journalists. Uh, and the, there, there are, I'll say, rumors or reports of conflict between the two entities that are protecting now the President of the United States, between a private security detail that President Trump still maintains, and the U.S. Secret Service operate under the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, the Secret Service has made it very clear publicly that, that, that they are in charge of the detail. Uh, and that is up for debate at the moment. Uh, and there are a lot of concerns as to, well, what if something happens uh, during some event? Uh, what if the private detail hurts someone, shoots someone? Uh, you know, what would the liability be for the president? How would that handle be handled? Uh, are they under the same type of uh, laws and, and governing regulations that 
that the uh, president that the secret service is so we're trying to get at to all of this information there's also some con some issues about a secret service officer actually agent secret service agent who was potentially disciplined because his wife spoke out at an event with uh, the then candidate trump i believe and she spoke out on on something she was involved with personally and word got back that it had was one of the agent's wives and supposedly the Trump people wanted him disciplined and don't know if it happened, but that's one of the things the FOIA is looking for. <laughs> well, hell, the networks right now are scrambling, worried about advertisers offending, quote unquote, offending President Trump during the Super Bowl. So, I mean, do we really have to have those kind of worries about offending this president? I mean, we, tonight, tonight in a phone call with the allegedly uh, and lots of uh, legacy media was reporting this right before we went on the air. Trump had a phone call with the president of Mexico and he told him uh, basically, quote unquote, get your own brace, you know, your bad hombres together and, and, and take care of them, or he's going to send the United States military. I mean, this is just the ridiculousness. All right. So um, with regards to his security detail, we've already seen with Trump towers and sorry, I probably got really loud. I got very close to the mic. We've already seen, um, you know, extra money, right? Extra money going into this administration for security with regards to Trump Towers and stuff like that. Melania is may or may not live in the White House at any given time and so on and so on and so on. So how important in the scheme of things in a sentence, and then I want to get to the dossier, how important is this security detail in a sentence that you can just break it down into lay terms for any American listening right now so that they get it? Well, a private security detail reports only to the president and has an obligation contractually with the individual man, whereas those who are working for the Secret Service, they're not protecting Donald Trump. They're protecting the president of the United States. And the liabilities that they may have and responsibilities to, to how they act to people perceived as a threat or a nuisance may be different. And that's a lot of what we're concerned about. Right. I get it. Okay. So let's go on to this uh, 35 page Trump dossier now with Politico with Josh Gers. Is it Gerstein or Gerstein? I'm going to plead the fifth. <laughs> I think it's Gerstein. He I'm can gonna, correct I'm us if we're wrong. I'm going to mispronounce Josh's name and he's going to be mad at me. So. Right. I'll, I'll do so. it. I'll mispronounce it. Josh, come on the show. Let's talk about this. Okay. So here, here's the thing. So we have, we have this 35 page dossier that was put together by Christopher Steele. He's a former British MI6 intelligence officer. And what is really in question with your FOIA is a two page intelligence briefing, something that was provided to Trump. And I, for me, and I don't think that maybe a lot of people that have interest in the dossier or believe that maybe the allegations about it are real, the blackmail and all of that, which we're going to kind of jump into here. But I think that maybe they're overlooking the fact of what the intelligence community had said, as far as basically it was kind of irrelevant for any of us to know about. Right. Yeah. And, and really what we're particularly interested in is as the story developed and it seems to have sort of disappeared, quite frankly, uh, which is interesting in and of itself, the intelligence community had it for an amount of weeks at least. I mean, John McCain walked it over to the FBI director himself 
And I'm, I'm not quite sure of the chronology. I don't know if we've ever seen as far as you know when the CIA got it, when the Office of uh, Director of National Intelligence got it, NSA, etc. Uh, but I imagine certainly at least right after the FBI director got it and then President Obama got it. So it's uh, between then and briefing uh, President-elect Donald Trump, I believe he was already, uh, or maybe even just before right. it, I forget the timing, uh, of the two-page synopsis, well, what did they distill down into that two pages? Is it is it just... A, a summary of what's in the 35 pages, which obviously is now available online through BuzzFeed, uh, and everybody can go and read it and judge it for yourself? Uh, or was there actual intelligence analysis done of some of these allegations? Some of the information would be very difficult to, I guess, to, to be able to see and verify would be the word I want, to verify, at least by us as normal people, lawyers, journalists. Some of it will need uh, intelligence agencies to do so. Uh, we've seen a number of suspicious events happen since. Uh, some of the Russians tied to the document by name have turned up dead <laughs> or have right. disappeared or have been arrested. Uh, as you mentioned, I think you said, uh, or at least you mentioned the MI6, former MI6 author's name. Uh, he has gone into hiding. Um, but one of the reasons why the document got the, received the credibility it did was because he had credibility with the U.S. government inside the intel community. They knew who he was. Uh, and now that's it important. looks like... Wait. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely that's very, important. very, very important for everybody that is listening. I don't care who you support. I don't care what your politics are. Christopher Steele is a credible person and he cannot get mullayed in all of this in that sense. And people on the far right, these Trump supporters and everything, there really isn't anything that they can like chalk up and say, oh, this is some bad dude. He's a lie, you know, a lie, a lie mouth and all of that. I mean, he, he has... Uh, an outstanding record, a long-term engagement in, in MI6. And, and so there's the veracity of him is relatively solid as far as I can tell. Is that correct? You know, as far as I don't know the man, but as far as everything that I've seen reported, that is accurate. Now, he was hired uh, in the sense of being a political operative. The paper reads uh, very much like a raw intelligence data uh, with an undertone of politics in the sense of looking at just some rumors that were heard uh, to see if anything can be developed from it. But, you know, there's, there's no indication that he is an individual who would fabricate information. Now, whether or not the information told to him was true is a complete different story, but it, this, these were not finished in t intelligence products. It was very much raw that this is what he's hearing on the ground from sources. Uh, and, and, you know, if anybody wants them to be explored further, I imagine there would have been a cost involved. But once they were filtered over to the U.S. government, and from what, again, the press reported, was that once Steele was off the job, as far as he wasn't any longer being paid by the 
uh, political non-party attributes. These were like PACs or individuals or something like that, I think. Um, he thought the allegations that he was learning about were so serious that he didn't stop. Uh, he continued on without pay, at least was what was reported, uh, and then filtered this information to the U.S. government. And part of the question that we're looking at with respect to the law litigation is, well, what was the reaction of the U.S. government? <laughs> exactly. Well, interesting on that note is, um, you know, the Wall Street Journal has been reporting, and then now today ABC News was reporting that a U.S.-Russian businessman is said to be the source of the key information in that in those dossier claims. His name is uh, Sergey uh, Millian. He's a naturalized American citizen. He most recently headed a group called the Russian American Chamber of Commerce, and it was uh, he said that he was in Moscow at the time that the dossier accuses Trump of being involved with these Russian prostitutes and stuff like that, and that he helped Trump recruit Russian investors and um, had posted pictures of himself as well, you know, attending several of these black ties events with regards to the inauguration and stuff like that. So he is the man that so somehow suddenly is like being thrust out there and. I'm not really sure how I feel about it yet because, like I said, everything's been kind of fast and furious coming at me, and I haven't had a whole lot of time to j digest this. But have you heard anything about Do you know anything about this guy? Um, and what can you talk about? Because I think that my concern here with regards to, uh, a as I was leading into about the, the dossier and the, and the two-page synopsis particularly, is when there are is this 35 pages that was publicly published with a, a lot of stuff out there that is concerning to most Americans um, about who is our president. I mean, hell, I mean, they can't deny that. I mean, especially all these people that have voted for Trump and all this stuff in the dossier, they're like a lot of the very people that had a fit that Bill Clinton got a blow job. I mean, let's, let's, let's be real here. And so, um, is the greater issue at hand, the bigger answer out of your FOIA, the contents of that synopsis in regards to what it means to the American people and how it was presented to Trump or the contents of what it is in its whole and, of course, what it means to the American people, but the fact that the intelligence community is withholding it? I mean, you know, one of the things, the intelligence community took it seriously, and, and that raises its, its sort of level of credibility or threat, that they were that concerned that it was briefed to the president of the United States and the next president of the United States. So there's a, there's a few different functions of it. You know, I'd love to know what was actually in the two-page briefing. I, I highly doubt that, that we will get that information, because this is raw intelligence data. Now, but that's part of the question. Now, I can make an argument that the 35 pages are not classified and that they, that type of information should be released. I, I'm more interested to know, was the two-page document merely a summary of the 35 pages? Hey, Mr. President-elect, uh, it's alleged in this memo that you were in a Moscow hotel and, and you didn't know, but you were being filmed with someone other than your wife. Were you in Moscow on August 13th, you know, 2015, you know, whatever the information is there. Or uh, is it, and they wouldn't have interrogated him, they, they would have, it was just a briefing. Um, or is that two pages 
saying, you know, we, we investigated all of this and 90% of it we proved to be false uh, or, or just unsubstantiated. And the other percent, the other items in there, either we proved them to be true uh, or we're still looking into it. You know, I think that um, is, is fascinating. Uh, and the, you know, how much, how much have they dug down into it? Because I haven't seen any reporting on that whatsoever uh, going beyond. In fact, I haven't even seen much in the way of anybody trying to verify on their own this information. Uh, and, and hopefully it won't get lost because every single day something new seems to be happening that is major and dominating. And, yeah, and, hey, I mean, Beyonce's pregnant with twins, so that's going to take right. up Right, I mean, like, what the hell? I, <laughs> I mean, that was all across my, my Facebook and my Twitter and my other social media feeds today. I'm like, I, I'd, I lost count of how many times I saw that headline about Beyonce pregnant with twins. I don't care. I, you know, I mean, congratulations and all that. I don't care. Right now, we have a lot of very serious stuff going down in this country. Um, I do have a question still with regards to this dossier that we haven't spoken about. There was an article that I became aware of yesterday uh, in Medium called from Jonathan Zunger, and it was called Trial Balloon for a Coup. And it was rather interesting. It was about the dossier, and there was one portion in it that the writer felt it has been being overlooked. And he says that in the still dossier on Trump, there was a statement that Putin had offered Trump 19% of Rosneft um, if he became a company, if he became president and had removed sanctions. And that the reason that this was interesting is that the dossier had said that um, the sale didn't happen until early December and 19 at 19.5%. That sounded kind of a lot like the 19%. So last Wednesday, Reuters had reported pretty much in great detail about this 19.5% of Rosnet, and which is Russia's state oil company, by the way, that it had been sold to these parties unknown through this array of shell companies. And that um, the most that can be said really with certainty is that now the money paying for it was originally loaned out to the shell lawyers by the government's official bank, VTB, in, even though it was highly still unclear who, if anyone, would be paying that loan back. Um, you know, it's been traced. Some of the recipients have been traced as far as like the Cayman Island shell companies and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's that is when we're talking 19 percent and then, you know, what was it? 19.5 percent. That's a very close thing, and and I'm not saying what's in the dossier is is real. There they are currently allegations, but as you pointed out, the intelligence community was taking it pretty seriously. So, um, you know, have you have you read that article at all? You know, what what would I, you like say to that? I'm aware of the article. I had a number of people send it to me. I, I only skimmed it, so I, I didn't really digest it uh, to to really be able to articulate any opinion about it. Uh, yeah, it was it was new and I hadn't really had time to like look further into it. So I just wanted to see if you had no, known anything about it. So let's jump on to some other things that happened today. And I don't know, you know, again, I understand how busy you are, but 
Today, um, both The Hill and BuzzFeed were reporting that Trump had ordered U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the the CBP, to ignore the federal judge's emergency stay. And Representative Joaquin Castro, the Democrat in Texas, said that the lawmakers should begin the process of censoring and potentially impeaching. And uh, Castro specifically said that there should be a resolution of censure. And if he does it again, there should be articles of impeachment. And also they are reporting that Castro and other Democrats were allegedly calling on Congress to investigate whether Presidential Trump intentionally exceeded his constitutional authority. Now, it just had come out that Congress is actually starting to investigate, um, you know, whether there was election hacking here um, in America, which is, you know, something that uh, just like the dossier that just kind of went by the wayside. So have you seen any of that? Can you kind of speak on is do, do you think that there are grounds for impeachment right now? I mean, this early in the game, do you think that the America is just going to get so weary of all this fast rolling out stuff that we're going to become immobilized? I mean, the majority didn't, did not vote for this man. So, Well, grounds for impeachment from a constitutional standpoint can be a very political process. It was for Andrew Johnson in 1869, uh, and there were certainly components of it for Richard Nixon in 1974 and Bill Clinton in 1999, which isn't to say that there weren't crimes committed, uh, at least with Nixon and Clinton. I don't really think there was anything for Johnson, as I recall, but uh, I'm skeptical uh, when I'm when I'm hearing some of the comments, certainly coming out of the, the Democratic Party and congressional representatives about the, you know, like you said, the telling DHS getting instructions to disobey the court order. If something like that happens, then yes, I think that's the way. Frankly, we're going to go. I, I'm at least my my own prediction that. Where this battle is going to come down to uh, in in how long, if whether Donald Trump makes it all four years or not, is going to be a battle between the executive branch and the judiciary. Uh, It's going to be those two branches. At some point in time, the legislative branch will come around, but the legislative branch is so partisan, uh, obviously, that they're going to come along being pulled, being dragged, kicking and screaming. But at some point... If, there, if something happens that is so abhorrent to the Constitution, then they will play a role. And I think it's going to come from uh, if something like what you described and this member of Congress has described actually turns out to be true. I have my doubts that it's true yet. Uh, one of the th- and this is where FOIA really will come into play, because one of the things that I'm, I'm interpreting, that I'm seeing or perceiving is that this is a an administration that is very disorganized uh, outside of its inner staff. You know, they know what they want to do, they know what they're doing, but the message is that's being filtered out is is very vague at times and and wishy-washy. And we've already seen them pull back on the many different things that they said they wanted the policy to be, and then as public pressure mounted, they reversed themselves. So. It may very well have been that that was a message conveyed or interpreted by some on the front lines at DHS, but at least I'm going to be skeptical initially that this was an actual policy. I find it hard to believe. I want to find it hard to believe. I don't want to believe that a president of the United States and, and his inner 
sanctum are going to actually make a decision that says we are disregarding what a federal judge has ordered. That's when things will really start to spiral downward. Well, earlier, right before I went live on the air, there was, uh, and I don't have the article in front of me, but um, there was an article that had come out, and apparently Trump had just, uh, is getting ready to train, to change, sorry, change some of the verbiage, Um, and our country apparently is no longer going to be going after any kind of domestic extremism, homegrown terrorists, the, the sole focus is going to be on Islamic terrorists. Um, and that that was being reported by American Foreign Press, AP, and, you know, big legacy media. It wasn't, you know, like someone like me that put something out. So I believed it to be true. Um, I, and again, it was just this was just happening as I was working up to go live. So you may or may not have seen that. But that is the case. He's actually changing the verbiage um, that is that is that is in all of this to specifically go after Muslims. And it's to me, that's a little bit crazy. I mean, do, I mean, it, it, here it is the program. It's they want to call it countering violent extremism or CVE would be changed to countering is that's what it is called. Sorry. Countering is Islamic extreme extremism or to countering radical Islamic extremism. And um, that they were, and it says specifically, they were no longer going to target groups such as white supremacists, even those who had carried out bombings and shootings in the United States. That just came out tonight, Mark. That was a Reuters story. Right. I saw the headlines. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to read the story. I, I, you know, I, <laughs> it, it's hard to, to come up in words with how to react to something like that. Because even if you want to prioritize, for whatever reason, combating against Islamic terrorism, why in the world would you disregard non-Islamic terrorism? And, you know, I think people tend to forget what that means, but there's far more non-Islamic terrorist attacks against the United States, the government, than there are of Muslim or Islamic terrorists. Uh, You know, Timothy McVeigh was... Was, was a white, uh, non-Muslim, uh, former military, uh, and those that he worked with. Uh, Eric Rudolph, same thing, uh, who perpetrated the 1996 Atlanta bombing. Uh, Ted Kaczynski, um, not in the same type of mentality as, as, the, as Rudolph and McVeigh, but still you know, a white male, Ivy League educated, uh, who just had his own skewed view of what the government should or should not be doing. Uh, and these were people who terrorized and killed uh, quite a number of people, especially Timothy McVeigh, 168 innocent people in Oklahoma City in 1995. So well, you know, there, there's a lot of Mark's, that going on, and I, I, don't, I don't get it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, speaking of um, McVeigh, a, a huge um, supporter of Timothy McVeigh is uh, a man named Gary Hunt, who is, has been a part of the story that I spent the entire last year covering, which was the the Bundys and the Oregon standoff and the militias and everything that was involved in the um, the takeover, the armed takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge here in Oregon, and it was related, uh, you know, via the Bundys to the 2014 Bundy Ranch standoff that was all over the news and those the Nevada trials getting ready to start this month. And uh, the second of the Oregon standoff trials starts on Valentine's day on the 14th. And um, 
Gary Hunt is very much a part of that, uh, that whole mentality, which kind of brings us back full circle to where we began in this about this extremism and stuff. And right now, all those people that had claimed for the last year, as I was doing all this reporting to be these, these American patriots and, you know, with their pocket constitutions and stuff, it feels to me when we have, um, you know, uh, this, this new counter terrorism, counter extremism program, that's only going to be about Islam. Uh, Trump also, right before we went live, um, he had gone out and there was that he's got um, there's a leaked draft of his uh, religious freedom order, which basically is going to legalize discrimination. So all the things that we saw, like with Chick-fil-A and, you know, uh, Ken Davis and all those different things where people were putting their foot down businesses and such, that's, you know, Trump's going to allow that to just be par for the course so much for all those years where we were taught tolerance right but i mean there's a lot going on so how does a country embrace this president can we embrace him i mean there's so much garbage that's hanging off of him so where do we go as a nation under trump what is his if we allow this to continue if we're not really fighting hard this is the worst i've seen in my history and you know me i thought bush i thought george bush <laughs> i thought that he was the epitome of evil however uh trump is tenfold in my eyes right now so how do we move forward i mean how do we make this work because i get the impression mark like i imagine if we were all back in high school again that you would be the guy that was um you know, like had a student council and you would be like just kind of organizing where we're going to go. So like tell, 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 tell us what we're going to do. Well, I mean, we have to stay vigilant. And, uh, you know, I, I'm constantly reminded and people make a lot of comparisons to uh, the early days in the 1930s in Europe and uh, Weimar Germany. And that's not to say that we're going anywhere near down the path of, of Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler. Uh, although sometimes it's reminiscent of it, quite frankly. Uh, but th there, there are all this Islamic phobia and nationalism and white nationalism uh, with Bannon in, in particular that are eerily similar to national socialism uh, and xenophobia. And, I mean, there's some significant differences between the 1930s and now 2017, particularly economically, uh, and and the way the countries are structured, and the and the aftermath of World War One, and the impact it had on the German citizenry and stuff like that, that don't exist. So I don't think we're going down that path. But but there's a lot of things to be scared of, and there seems to be a lot of people in our country. Uh, I was listening to NPR a little bit earlier. They were talking to Trump supporters in Michigan, I think it was. No, Illinois, I believe. Illinois, Michigan. Anyway, the, the questions were. You know, how do you think the first week has been, first two weeks or so? And they were basically saying, you know, I know it's probably not good to say, but I'm happy with everything, you know, because these people aren't affected by this for the most part. Uh, you know, who cares what happens to these Muslim people in these countries? I don't know anybody from these countries. I'm saying them. I'm not. I mean, I know lots of people from these countries. I've represented lots of people from these countries, uh, a number of them who risked their lives working for the U.S. government while we were over there in Iraq and Afghanistan and still are. Uh, I mean, and, and children. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, I mean, we, we need to stay vigilant and use the same medium that's being used against us with Twitter uh, and, and that to mobilize and, and keep at the pressure and, and educate 
uh, and stand up. I mean, part of the problems in the 1930s were everybody just kind of watched uh, idly by and saying, you know, it's not going to get any worse. This is probably the worst it's going to be. And every day it got worse. And they kept saying, you know what, it's not going to get any worse than this. And it kept getting worse. And, you know, there's that very famous poem uh, of which I always have to look it up because I don't know it by heart. But, you know, they they came for the gypsies. I didn't say anything because I'm not a gypsy. And they came for the Catholics. Yeah. I didn't say anything. I'm not a Catholic. Came for the Jews. I didn't say anything. I'm not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was nobody left to say anything. So we're not going to get to that point. Uh, you know, we're, I hope we're not. speaking I up. I hope not. And, I, no. and I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking to people like you, Mark, to make sure that we don't. You guys have the clout. You guys have the standing. You guys have the ties and the connections to, like, really kind of rabble rouse and shake things up and be the real truth sayers and slayers right now. And um, it's important, I think, more so than any other time in my living history. Well, I still believe in the system. Right now, our executive branch is a little bit out of whack. Our legislative branch is dysfunctional. That that had nothing to do with Trump. It was before that, the last 10, 15 years. Uh, I'm really relying on and looking to the judicial branch to make the difference. And that's also with no matter how conservative the courts might be or the Supreme Court with Judge Gorsuch uh, replacing, most likely replacing Justice Scalia. You know what? Even uh, in, in in not too long after 9/11 and the invasion of Iraq, uh, and we were then, of course, in Afghanistan, the Supreme Court, you know, said no to the Bush administration when it came to indefinite detentions and not allowing those at Guantanamo to be able to bring challenges in the U.S. court system. Uh, by 2004, they were, they were, courts were ruling even probably even a little bit before, but reached the Supreme Court up in that time uh, and saying, no, the executive branch has overstepped its boundaries. This isn't World War II any longer where the Supreme Court condones the incarceration of Japanese Americans in detention camps. Uh, we're past that. And that, that very negative experience uh, is motivating judges now that that is not what America is about. So I'm, I am really looking to the judiciary, and I think this past weekend demonstrated that uh, right now we, we can be assured uh, that federal judges are going to uphold the law. That's why I get back to what you are saying before. If the president is ordering executive branch officials to disregard the law, then then we're that's when we're going to be in a real problematic stage and and that's where i i start thinking bad thoughts uh in history that i don't <laughs> want to believe could ever happen here uh in our lifetime i thought we were way past that uh but you know time will tell uh, nobody has a crystal ball. Time's going to tell. And our time is up, Mark. So I'm going to have to uh, bump you out of here. And I know I'm going to have you back on again. So I really appreciate your time tonight. Anytime, Sherry. Always there for you. At the Andy Each Show, I'm highlighting people and examples, real Americans who are doing it right. Like our former acting Attorney General, Sally Yates. Her bravery in going against Trump and his cronies was a true act of patriotism. On Monday, Yates sent a letter to top lawyers at the Justice Department directing them not to defend the White House's executive order regarding immigrants and refugees from certain Muslim-majority countries 
an order being legally challenged in a number of jurisdictions, including by Mark Sade. Gates said it was her ultimate responsibility to determine the position of the Department of Justice in the actions, saying it was also her responsibility to ensure that the position of the Department of Justice was not only legally defensible, but was informed by their best view of what the law, after consideration of the facts, actually was. She said she was not convinced that defending the executive order was consistent with those responsibilities, adding she was not convinced also that the executive order was even lawful. She said as then acting attorney general, the Department of Justice will not present arguments in defense of the president's executive order. Or until she became convinced that it was appropriate to do so. For her effort, she was fired. You're fired, says Donald Trump. And in a White House statement to the American people, the Trump administration labeled Yates as a traitor by saying that Yates had, quote unquote, betrayed the Department of Justice by refusing to enforce a legal order designed to protect the citizens of the United States, a.k.a. They accused her of betraying America. That's a bullshit response and a scary example of the power that this administration seems intent on wielding. We all owe Sally Yates our gratitude. Bravo, Sally. Thank you. Keep doing it right. There are others like Yates still sitting in positions of power. There are also other whistleblowers waiting to uh, save their story. They're there in the wings waiting for that moment to step into the light. And it is my hope that they contact someone like tonight's guest, Mark Say, that can help them, guide them through this lit legitimate legalities of this so that they are taken more seriously than Snowden was by many of the population. I am a Snowden supporter. Mark Zaid thinks that he did it wrong. Um, and that's where we disagree on that. But I still say, Mark Zaid, your man, you want to blow the whistle. Let's take the legal route. If you know someone who is doing it right, email me at challengingtherhetoric at yahoo.com. Remember, it was absolutely not a majority of this country that put Trump in the White House. We are the majority. This is where hope lies. Our words in our many voices, they have power. What impact are your words making in this world, in your community, in your home? We each have to take responsibility for this propaganda that we participate in, whether we're creating it or whether we're curating it. It doesn't matter. We are responsible. The click, like, share, lather, rinse, repeat cycle. Are we really any better for it? I'm pretty sure we're not. That's it for me tonight. I'll be back live tomorrow, Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern with more on this topic, <laughs> Trump, 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 with leading cybersecurity and cybercrime forensic expert, Frederick Lane, another recurring guest. Until then, be kind to one another. If you like what I'm doing, please share the links. Gratuities to the CTR PayPal are also always, always, always appreciated. If you missed part of tonight's show or any of the others, you can find the archive links on the website at challengingtherhetoric.news. Thanks for listening. <laughs>